If you're a visitor, my name is Bo Andrews. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the opportunity to uh, teach God's Word here from the pulpit occasionally, and I, I always take it as a very special opportunity and, and something I look forward to doing. Um, I got a chance to introduce the book of Galatians as we started out the summer, and now to this week and next, we're going to wrap up the, the book, and then uh, Pastor Kim will be taking us back into uh, our study in Matthew. So, John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When I got a chance to uh, open up the book of Galatians and explain it as we began the summer, I laid it out and said that it's easy to think about the book of Galatians in reference to the five solas that we have in, in, in the Reformation and how that in Chapters 1 and 2, Paul was defending his authority, much like the first sola of, of Scripture, or only by Scripture, God's Word is declared to us through Scripture, um, and the authority of the Scripture speaks for God, and we find ourselves under it. And so Paul set out the book by saying, uh, giving us a detailed account of his salvation experience and how God revealed the gospel to him so that the readers of the book of Galatia of Galatians would believe what Paul was saying, that he spoke for the Lord. And then in the following chapters, primarily at the end of 2 through 3 and 4, Paul laid out what the gospel is, that we're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the book, now in 5 and 6, we're getting to the last of the solas, the fifth, that we live out this gospel for the glory of God. And John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Today, before we start and get into chapter 6, I want to um, explain that I think that living for God's glory and being satisfied in what God has done on our behalf are so connected that I doubt that it's possible to live for his glory unless we truly are satisfied in what he's accomplished on the cross for us. That only when we are full or filled with the truth of what God has done on our behalf can we live out a life for the glory of God instead of living a life that's using things to build our glory. That man, by very nature, if you turn in your, in your Bibles from Galatians, where we are just a couple pages over, you'll hit Ephesians, where Paul in chapter 2 of Ephesians sets out that man, by his very nature, is fallen and is a slave to the passions of his body and his mind to obey them. Because something, Paul would say, that by our nature we just follow the course of the world. And it's that something happened in the Garden of Eden when we as humanity gave up our right relationship with God. At the Garden, our ego was broken, our identity was broken, everything about who we as humanity thought of ourselves was broken because we lost the relationship with God where we were his sons and daughters and heard, well done from the Father. And I think that Romans 1 puts it uh, in a way that 
says that all of us in some sense, every human in some sense, knows that we need a well done put on our life. And we have a desire to hear God confirm us. And without that desire, we go through life looking to be confirmed by the accolades and actions of everyone else around us. We feed on other people to try to fill something that's empty and broken in ourselves. So without seeing what God has done for us on the cross that changes our identity and fills up who we are, I don't think we can live a life giving of ourselves. We are trapped to continue to live a life to try to fill ourselves by consuming one another. And I believe that I want to set this up because I think that what Paul is getting at as he starts to talk about how we behave in the church, which is the beginning of chapter 6 that we're going to get through, I think the church is supposed to be and can only operate the way it's supposed to when it's filled with people who are filled with the Spirit, who have a right understanding of who they are, and who have already heard God say, well done to us. Now what Paul has laid out for us in Galatians is if that our salvation is contingent on good works, we can never hear God's well done. We can never be righted in our identity because we can never do enough good works to truly know that God's pleased with us. And so salvation can't be of works. It has to be a finished work of God if it's going to truly heal what's broken in us. At the very heart of creation, at the very heart of the story that God's telling, is this message where God shows us how he wants us to live, and we find it if we would go into the temple. And as we walk into the temple that God meticulously gave the Jews the the order of how to build it, where everything belonged in it, not one detail was left undone of how God wanted his temple to be built or tabernacle before. As you walked through the temple, when you got to the very heart of the temple where God's footstool was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, think of what you saw when you walked in there. You didn't see an image. You didn't see a person. You saw an event. An event represented by this. In that golden chest was, uh, in that golden cabinet of the ark was the law. And as you saw the law, if you walked in there, you saw the brokenness of Israel that they could never keep it, that we can't Keep God's law well enough to be right with him. But you know what you would see over the law? A golden seat where the blood of animals was spilled every year. And the blood covered the broken law underneath. But year after year, those animals had to be slain until the book of Hebrews says the perfect would come and Jesus would come. And his blood would be spilled on that mercy seat once and for all to cover the brokenness of the law underneath. 
In other words, when you got right to the heart of the temple, right to the heart of what God wanted to communicate about the relationship between he and people, you would see this event where God said, my life for yours. And then we see it perfectly on the cross where Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is hanging, literally saying, my life given for yours. What I think that I started out with the, 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 the quote is to say that the only way for us to truly live in a manner that says my life is given for you as my brothers and sisters in the same body of Christ is for me to first be completely convinced that on the cross God said I'm taking care of your sin issue so finely and fully that your identity is completely restored. That you never, ever, not for one second, have to doubt our relationship again. Not on your best day, not on your worst day. Not one moment after you fall into temptation do you have to doubt my love for you. And only when we are so full of God's love for us can we begin to give away our lives to bless others? And that's what I think Paul has been setting out when he says this. If you look in verse 13, back in chapter 5, you've been made free. How how were we made free? By the blood that was applied on that mercy seat that saved you from the brokenness of your sin and the curse of it. You've been made free from that, verse 13 in chapter 5. Don't use that freedom now as an opportunity for the flesh, but you've been made free to love one another. Love one another. You know what? Every act of real love has at its core? Sacrifice. Love means my life given for you. He says, for the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But, but, if you can't totally get that God has made you whole, then you will be trapped into biting and devouring one another and being consumed because you need others to continue to make you whole. I think he sets that out even further when he delineates it in the next couple of verses and says, there are ways that we, if we remain in our brokenness, there are ways that we tend to use other people to try to fill our identity problem. And those can be looked at in conquest. And so Paul would say this, if you walk by the flesh, in verse 19, the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Think about the brokenness of human beings that when they don't know who they are, how they use conquest of other people to try to fill themselves in sensuality and impurity. If I can get you to give yourself to me, it will make me feel better about who I am. And so I must be, I must be continuing, continually looking to feed off of someone else to prop up my broken identity. 
if conquest doesn't work, comparison. And he goes through and he says, look, envy, jealousy, divisions, dissensions, rivalries. Comparing ourselves to others because we don't feel whole. And maybe if I can find somebody else that I can put down, or maybe I find somebody else that doesn't do quite as well as I do, that'll make me feel better about myself. If that doesn't work, conflict, fits of, uh, of, of anger, strife. Finally, if that doesn't work, I can numb myself, drunkenness. The church can't operate out of those broken ways of needing to use each other to build up our our identities. We have to be what Paul says then, filled with the Spirit. And the way to be filled with the Spirit is to be satisfied completely in what God has done for you and for me so that I can give away instead of take. All right, now we're to our verses. Let me read through our passage, and then we're going to start looking at what what I think God has asked us to do uh, as we um, are in relationship with one another in the church in chapter 6. But I want to start the passage uh, in actually chapter 5, verse 25. We're going to read through the first five verses of 6, and then we're going to pray and we're going to talk about it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each of each one test his own work, and then he has reason to boast. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Pray with me, Heavenly Father. We ask now that you would take your word. And that you would give us ears of faith to hear it with our souls. That that we would not be satisfied to hear these things in our ears. We would not be satisfied, Lord, just to hear the truth of them in our intellect. But they would break us, if we need, down to the very thoughts we have about who we are, down to our very identity, down to our very relationship with you. That you would convince us of the sufficiency of salvation by grace through faith alone in in Jesus' work on the cross. to the place that we cannot and will not doubt our relationship with you, to the place that we are so convinced and full of the saving grace that you have shown to us 
that we don't need others' accolades, that we don't need to perform, that we don't need in any way to try to fill up what's lacking in us, but instead we can look out at one another and ask how I can be a blessing. A blessing to each other, Lord, and in that way, fulfilling the law of Christ and a blessing to you. Lord, fill us up so that we can pour out of the love that you give us so that we can be full and lacking nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 5, or verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If, If we say that we're filled with God's Spirit, what does that look like in the way that we keep step, in the way that we live it out, in the way that we walk it out? In other words, what should a Christian's life look like? What does it look like to live only for God's glory? Well, Paul in verse 26 gives us what it doesn't look like, I think, to help us come into what it does look like. And he says, let let us not be conceited. And the word conceited there, if you've got a King James, probably says vainglorious. And it's trying to get at a, a, a compound word in Greek that means empty of glory. So what Paul says is first, if we're going to walk by the Spirit, if we're going to live out our salvation amongst each other for the glory of God, first, we can't be empty of glory. We have to be filled with the Spirit, which I'm saying means we have to be satisfied with what God has done on our behalf so that when we think of our relationship with God, we are at peace with the Father through the blood of the Son and the seal of the Spirit. If not, then we end up provoking one another and envying one another. If those things aren't true, then as we look at the rest of this verse uh, that we're going to study, this passage, I don't know how these things are possible unless first... We, have, we see ourselves in right relationship with God. Hopefully that becomes apparent. He starts out the passage and says, brothers, which just means he's talking to those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are, uh, that, that in this, are, are in the same assembly, how we treat one another. And I'd like to start by just saying and echoing what Pastor Ken said last week. I think that one of the things that we hear about our congregation and our assembly assembly, as visitors come in the door and I get to talk about them is that God has given us a wonderful spirit of love in this this church body, a wonderful spirit of giving, a wonderful spirit uh, of of walking beside one another. And so please do not hear the things that I'm saying from from the book of Galatians as somehow saying that we're short on these things or lacking these things, but only encourage us to grow in these things by considering what God has done for each of us. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, if any is caught, so as I read that, uh, my first reading of this thought, well, that's, that's like if, if anyone gets caught doing something they're not supposed to be doing, 
like, <clears throat> maybe I've said, <clears throat> no, honey, I'm, I'm writing off the donuts, uh, and I'm not going to have any, and then, you know, I think Sandra's in here talking, and so I run back there, and I sneak a donut, and, and I just go into the library, and just as I'm about to bite in, she walks in, and she's like, honey, and then I'm like, oh, I've been caught, uh, but that's not what this means, like, that's not, if any is caught in transgression, the word caught here has in mind the idea that you're trying to escape, but something is catching up to you until it overtakes you and you are caught by it. If anyone is caught in transgression, there's kind of three words that the Bible usually uses when it wants to say sin. Sin, which has in mind the idea that we miss the mark. Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, we were created as humanity to be the imago Dei, the image of God, that we would actually live our lives so much for the glory of God alone that creation would see how God looks like by looking at his images. Sin means that none of us is doing that well enough for somebody else to get a really accurate picture of who God is is by looking at our life. We've all fallen short of that. So whether it's wicked or not, sin just says when you fall short of accurately representing every part of God, you've sinned. Iniquity is the weakness that we have that we can't do that. And this word, transgression, really has in mind Transgression is when you see a boundary and you kind of willfully jump the boundary to go to the other side that was marked off to keep you away from it. Think about what Paul is saying as he now addresses the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. If any of you is caught in transgression, Well, for me, I'm like, well, who, who's that? Who's that person? Well, James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. So who is it that gets caught in transgression? Well, I think if James is right, it means at any point in our lives, any one of us could be overtaken and stand in need of a helping hand. I think that means that within this church body, no believer is 100% fall-proof. How do you want to be treated when you get caught in transgression? Do you want to bump into somebody when you get caught in transgression who's so insecure about who they are, that they need to to treat you as sinful, as dirty, because it makes them feel clean? Do you want to bump into somebody who, when you get caught, tells you what a rotten person you are and how you should be doing better and how can you? Or do you want to bump into somebody who's full 
of knowing that their salvation was not based on good works, lest they should boast, but but, but, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that when you interact with them, instead of bringing the law fully to, to bear on you, they know how to bring the gospel to you. Because see, any one of us could get caught in transgression. Let me ask you this. When's the last day that you got caught by temptation that you just weren't really prepared for? You didn't see it coming. You hadn't, you hadn't prepared yourself that day. And before you knew it, ooh, it was taking hold. How do, you, how do you want to be treated? Well, Paul says that how we treat one another is that we should restore one another. That means we don't humiliate each other. We don't ostracize each other. We don't shun each other. We don't even compare with each other. And we certainly don't put it on the prayer list so that we can gossip about one another. No, when we run into somebody who's been caught in transgression... Our heart hurts for that person. They're a brother or sister in Christ who God has dealt with at the mercy seat and has put His blood over their broken sin, sin, the, the law that's been broken by their life, just like He's done to us. And how do we see one another if we don't need to use each other to make ourselves feel better? We can enter into those people's lives who have been caught in the ugliness of transgression. Not just fallen in sin, but they've willfully crossed over a boundary that was set where God wanted to keep them safe from that. And they did the ugly and they did the nasty. And we're like, oh, until we realize, well, that could be us. And only but for the grace of God go us. And so when we interact with those people, there's no room to go like, how gross and how sick and how could you? There's only room to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And how can I minister to this person? The Bible says then, those who are spiritual, filled with the Spirit, are able to restore. Restore to love that person. The word restore has more idea, less about punishment and more about cure. Less about the law being put in a way to bring the penalty and more about grace and health. Isn't that a beautiful picture in the body of Christ? If you knew, as you looked around at all the people around you, that if they knew your dirtiest, deepest, darkest sin and the things that you know about you that make you doubt your relationship with God, that make you wonder, like, God, could you really love someone like me? If, If people around knew that they would move towards you with gentleness to try to restore you instead of ostracize, shun, or think better of themselves than you, Does that sound like a place you'd like to belong to? That's what Paul's saying the church should look like because the church is a reflection of of what God looks like. How can people see that God fully embraces and loves them, doesn't tolerate our sin, but is saving us from our sin if they walk into a church that treats each other any differently than that? Brothers and sisters, we're called to restore each other 
when we find someone caught in transgression. Restore each other in gentleness. I like gentleness because it, it has within itself, it, it's, it's not license that just says, well, uh, God doesn't care. You do that. I do that. God's good with any of it. But it's not legalism that says, no, no, uh, it's, it's meekness and gentleness. It's coming along beside someone. And why we do that, it says, keep watch on yourselves because you, or you too may be tempted. Keep watch because um, when you're walking beside somebody that's going through icky stuff, it tends to spread. It tends to get on you. So keep watch. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens means that when we look out at each other and we see somebody struggling with a weight, that we run to that person to help pick up their weight. Now, I'm going to confess. When I see a need, I like it to be a convenient need. Which means, if you have a financial need, I'd like for it to be $5 and under, please. Because then I can give to you right out of my pocket and it costs me nothing. And then I can feel really good about building myself up, knowing that I gave something to you, but I haven't borne any burden because I only gave it out of my extra and out of my convenience. If you're down and depressed and you can be cured with one pep talk, please come see me. Because that's super convenient. And then when you walk away feeling good, I can walk away feeling good about myself and it won't cost me any other time that I have set aside for other things. If you're going to have an emergency, please make it in between 3 and 5 o'clock on any weekday. Because then I can respond to your emergency without it costing me anything. But see, what Paul is saying in this is, to bear one another's burdens is when it's at the end of your work day and you're entering into your you time. When the cost of doing it means you're going to pick up something that becomes your burden. It means to invest in one another past the easy and past the convenient. And we can only do that when we're willing to give away some of us, which is why I'm saying unless we're satisfied in God in such a big way that we don't need to use each other, we can't give to you what I, I can't give you of things that I lack in me. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? The law of Christ is that you love one another. And this is what love looks like, the cross. What would a church body look like if each one of us in, uh, in here was saying, for a brother or sister, I'd be willing to go to a cross. 
Jesus didn't mince words when he just said, pick up your cross and follow me. Live the kind of life I'm living. Uh, the word's been coined a cruciform life. It means to look at the cross and see what Jesus did there and let it form your life. Who doesn't want to belong to a group of people that you knew was willing to go to the end with you? And that's what the church is. Because that's the covenant that God has made with his people. And in the church, we reflect who God is. Because we're living for the glory of God alone. Because we don't have to be living for our own glory. Our ego has no need. Our identity is whole. Our heart is filled. We can give away our life. And then Paul gives a warning in verse, uh, verse 3. But if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Proverbs 26, 12 says it this way. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's hope, more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 25, 14 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. The church can't be a place where people feel better about, better about themselves than other people around them looking down on each other. The church has to be a place where we get in the mess of each other's lives and carry one another's burdens without casting condemnation and guilt and shame on one another. Speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in so much love that it's, it's backed with the giving of ourselves to each other. It's a love that's not spoken, it's a love that's shown. It's not shown once out of convenience, it's shown time after time after time, after time again. And it's so easy to talk about this because I'm looking at a church that I think does it so well. As it's been shown to me and my family, certainly, as Pastor Ken talked about last week, feeling it himself. But in contradiction to those people who, in verse 3, think they are something but really are nothing, think that they're full of the Spirit, but really are conceited and empty of glory, and so they need to bite and devour one another so that they can continue to feed themselves. In contradiction to that, verse 4 says, but let each one of you test or examine his own work. So the psalmist prayed over and over, test me, Lord, and know my heart. Can I tell you that when my heart is at its worst is when I'm most tempted to look at others to see if I can find something to distract myself from my sin by looking at yours. And then instead of dealing with my sin, maybe I can enter into your sin with you and make myself feel better by working on your sin all the while glossing over mine. And what God tells us is like, God, test me. Test me. 
Because if there's any, if there's any emptiness in me, Lord, I'll be tempted to go out in wrong motive and use the people around me whom I absolutely love, but feed on them to try to fill my brokenness and feed on them to try to fill my insecurity. Instead, God, would you test me and would you show me every way that I doubt you? Because those doubts make emptiness in me where instead of living for your glory, I'm trying to fill up mine. And carry my own load is what the passage ends with. For each will have to bear his own load. And while earlier it says in verse 2, to bear one another's burden, so I'm supposed to bear your burden, but I'm supposed to bear my own load. And the reason that that works is because there are two different words that are given there. A burden is a crushing heavyweight. And so go again to when we find someone who has been running from sin, doing everything they can, but sin has caught them in some circumstance and transgression has overtaken them, that heavy weight that's crushing them, we're supposed to enter into that and, heavy, and carry it with them. But the load was a word that was used of a soldier's pack, and it was something that they just carried like baggage in their life, like luggage. Which one of us in here doesn't have baggage? Like life treats us in different ways and we all are gifted in different ways and so that we each have strengths and we each have weaknesses and we each have scars, how ridiculous would it be for me to judge you according to me when we have completely different issues? So in short, what Paul is saying is, as he's gotten on to how we are supposed to live for God's glory, this is what the church could be and should be. A people who are filled with God's Spirit, keeping step with God's Spirit in chapter 525, means walking with the Lord in a way that when we interact with one another, we are, we are more called to love and restore and enter into lifelong relationships than we are to judge and tear down each other. That we're more called being filled with God's Spirit to give ourselves to one another than to try to use each other to build ourselves up. That we're more called when we find out that there's a need to find out how we can help be a solution than when we find out there's a lack to say, I'm better than that. I don't do that. And build myself up. And wouldn't it be amazing if as we continue to grow in that grace, that this, that this assembly becomes such a place like that, that the rumors of such a place where love exists in such a way spread naturally through the conversations that we have with those outside of this place who have never experienced any kind of relationship like that, where they would just want to come and see a people who love each other like that. And when they came in, they would so see the security that we have in our relationship with God that it fills up our 
identities and the way we treat each other is so wonderful that they would just say, like, there's something different and I want to belong to that. And that we would see God bring in the broken and see them restored and enter the ranks of brothers and sisters. And if they come, think about the burdens that they'll have that need to be carried with them. And so my prayer as we go through this, and the next week we'll wrap it up as we talk about boasting in the cross. But my prayer today is just this, that God would be continuing to prepare us, while I think we do a fantastic job, but continue to prepare us to be the kind of church that as things crumble outside here and people look for a place for hope, broken people, that they would come in here and find a people who are willing to walk with them in their mess, willing to truly get involved with their life, not casually when it's convenient, and that we would see broken people, drug-addicted people, sexually challenged people come into these doors who don't know the Lord, and they see hope here, and they experience love here, in a way that draws them in to hear the gospel and that God would call people here who have needs and they would find a people who are here already who are willing to run to them instead of run away from them, who aren't willing about, worried about getting messy and in, in loving the lost. Because remember at the mercy seat and at the cross, what the picture is that God said to us, my life for yours. When Jesus called us to follow him, he called us to a living that says, now my life for you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, there is nothing more natural in my life than selfishness. I, I, I fight for comfort I fight to satisfy and gratify myself. But more than anything, Lord, I fight to prop up who I think of myself. And in doing so, Lord, I, I shortchange my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you give each of us such a picture of the fullness of the cross that knowing how broken we are, we are also equally convinced at how whole we have been made in, by the blood of Jesus, that we're willing to run to the broken, run to the wounded, run to the hurting, to give away our lives like our example Jesus did. Father, make us and continue to grow us as a church body, into people who love each other well and are prepared to love those that aren't anything like us. If by chance, Lord, you would be calling them to salvation as well. In Jesus' name, amen.